temptation. I want to read a story to you. It's by, it's just one page. It's by Arnold Lobel. And it's from the story of the toad and the frog together. Toad baked some cookies. These cookies smell very good, said Toad. He ate them. And they taste even better, he said. Toad ran to Frog's house. Frog, frog, cried Toad. Taste these cookies that I've made. Frog ate one of the cookies. These are the best cookies I've ever eaten, said Frog. Frog and Toad ate many cookies, one after another. You know, Toad, said Frog with his mouth full, I think we should stop eating. We will soon be sick. You are right, said Toad. Let's just eat one last cookie, and then we'll stop. Frog and Toad ate one last cookie, but there were many cookies left in the bowl. Frog, said Toad, Toad let us just eat one very last cookie, and then we will stop. Frog and Toad ate one very last cookie. We must stop eating, cried Toad, as he ate another. Yes, said Frog, reaching for a cookie. We need willpower. What is willpower? asked Toad. Willpower is trying hard not to do something that you really want to do, said Frog. You mean like trying not to eat all these cookies, asked Toad? Right, said Frog. Frog put the cookies in a box. There, he said. Now we will not eat any more cookies. But we can just open the box, said Toad. That is true, said Frog. Frog tied some string around the box. There, he said, now we will not eat any more cookies. But we can cut the string and open the box, said Toad. That is true, said Frog. Frog brought a ladder and he put the box up on a high shelf. There, said Frog, now we will not eat any more cookies. But we can climb the ladder and take the box down from the shelf and cut the string and open the box, said Toad. That is true, said Frog. Frog climbed the ladder and took the box down from the shelf, cut the string, opened the box, took the box outside and shouted in a loud voice, Hey birds, here are some cookies. The birds came from everywhere. They picked up all the cookies in their beaks and flew away. Now we have no more cookies to eat, said Toad sadly, not even one. Yes, said Frog, but we have lots and lots of willpower. You can keep all the willpower you want, Frog, said Toad. I'm going home to bake a cake. <laughs> How do you handle temptation? How do you handle temptation? Oscar Wilde, famous statement by him, I can resist everything except temptation. And the only way to get rid of temptation, Oscar said, is to yield to it. Kind of a depressing way to look at life. So what does God say about this? If you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of Genesis chapter 3. And we're in the, Genesis is the first book in the Bible. And uh, this is this series of messages we're doing, In the Beginning God. And today... We're going to read just the first 15 verses of chapter 3. I'd encourage you to read the remainder of the chapter um, later. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, 
we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And then, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, between you, your offspring, and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. So I entitled this little talk, The Big Apple. And it's kind of interesting because, of course, many people think that the fruit that they ate was an apple, but we really don't know because the text doesn't say. It just says fruit. And in chapter 2, we know that, as we looked at last week, they'd been put in what I like to call the perfectly perfect environment, a place where life was as God intended it to be. And it's a picture of what things will be like when Christ returns one day and we reign with him. And in the garden, in chapter 2, their relationship was, with God was full and clear and untarnished and undamaged. It was barrier-free. There was no sin. There was no wrong motives to get in way of a pure and healthy relationship with God. And last week, we looked as well that in relationship with nature, God's uh, creation was healthy and pure, and they were to work in the creation because work is part of perfection. And they were to use the creation for their needs, but never to abuse it. They were to care for it and manage it well, unlike many people have done. And finally, there was the relationship between them as husband and wife, which was a picture of what relationship should be like in terms of community and caring for one another. And God says, I've placed you in the perfectly perfect environment. You lack absolutely nothing. You've been fully provided for, and you've also been given the freedom to choose. And all of this is yours to take care of and enjoy and be part of, but there's one tree, it says in chapter 2, I want you to avoid. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I ask you to make the choice not to approach it, not to touch it, not to eat of the fruit. But I warn you, 
But if you go against my wishes, that's the moment of rebellion in your life. And you will die as a result. It's very clear. Fast forward to chapter 3. Satan operating through the serpent approaches Adam and Eve. And there's debate in verse 6 there whether Adam was standing right beside her. I'm guessing he probably was standing right beside her and heard all of the dialogue. But we don't know for sure. He might have been somewhere else in close proximity, but likely he was standing right beside her. And it says in verse 7 that their eyes were open because of the choices they made. And Satan, through the serpent, has approached them, and it says he was crafty and he was devious, and that he asks a question, in essence suggesting to them, to the woman at least, that God was keeping something back from them. And it was something like this, hey Eve, and perhaps Adam if he was right beside. God's been really good to you. Man, he's provided for you in so many ways. You know, you should be appreciative of that. But I have to tell you, he's holding out on you. Did you know that he's holding out on you? He, it, he made it look like he gave you everything, but he held one really important thing back. Malcolm Muggeridge has written, people do not believe lies because they have to, but because they want to. Not because they have to. They believe lies because they want to. And we are often like this. We have, especially in our culture, we have more than enough. We have everything we need, but we're often consumed with the idea that I deserve more. And we are prepared to go to some pretty serious lengths to get what we think we deserve. And so Satan speaks to the woman. He puts sort of a haze over God's commands. He muddies up the waters and makes it fuzzy and unreasonable. And he says to her, did God really, did he really say that? Do you think that's really what he was saying? And presumably this plants a kernel of doubt in her. But she responds by repeating. She knows enough to repeat what God has said to her in chapter 2. And so it's not a matter of her not hearing the instructions, but he's muddied up the water for her a little bit. And so there's a bit of a progression here, and Satan begins, he, he realizes, I've muddied up the waters for her, and he begins to press in with the temptation. And then he, he, he just outright contradicts God's command. Come on now, he says in verse 4. You're not really going to die. That sounds a little harsh to me, Eve. Come on. And then in verse 5, he misrepresents God's motives again. God's keeping something back from you folks. And he appeals to their egos, and he gives them an inflated view of themselves. And he's challenging the whole idea that we wrestle with all the time that God has good intentions for them. That God will provide everything they need. That God will provide the good for people because he's a good God. And he's saying to them, I don't really think you can trust God's intentions. And this is something we wrestle with all the time. And this is where faith comes in. Where we sit there and we say, even though I don't have perfect knowledge like God does. Even though I don't have eternity 
and know the end from the beginning and see the long game. And God does. And even though I don't understand everything and I don't have perfect wisdom like God does, I question if his good intentions are really purely good. And so when he says things to me in his book, he reveals things to me by his spirit that I'm clearly supposed to be engaged in or to step away from, I wonder about that. Even though I don't totally get it like he does. I wonder if he really has my best interests in mind. And friends, this is absolutely at the heart of all of Christianity. This is the key question that comes out of this book. Will I surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ? Will I surrender? Even when I don't totally understand, even when it requires faith, even when life is desperately unfair, will I surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ? And this is the first time Satan uses this lie on people, and he uses it every day. I see it all the time, not only in my life, but in people's lives. You can't really trust God's intentions. And don't you think you know better than him? And if you do this, you're going to be like God. And the reality, of course, we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, is that we are made in the image of God, created in his image, and yet we're not God. And so pride and arrogance rises up and rebellion rises up in their hearts. And it says in verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. Translation, so that she could be God too. She took some and she ate it. Gaining wisdom, trying to find divine wisdom apart from God is divination and it is an act of rebellion. And again, we don't know for sure from the text if he was standing right beside her. I'm guessing he probably was. But we do know this. It says in 1 Timothy 2.14, And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. So let's just jump to today. What are some of the ways, apart from what I've already said, that happens to us all the time? What are some of the ways that Satan tries to deceive us and tries to draw us into sin? Because some of us are sitting here right now considering things we know we shouldn't do. And when we do that, which we do all the time, because we're extremely creative, we start coming up with all these perfected rationalizations. And so one of them, I sound like a person who has lots of experience, right? Uh, yeah, I've wrestled with all these things. And so one of the rationalizations we come up with is that forgiveness is easier to get than permission. Come on. God's a loving God. We sang about it, we hear about it. You're not really going to die if I do this thing. Worst case scenario is I'm going to get a little rap on the knuckles. But everything will come out in the wash later. But what does God say? He says in Genesis chapter 2, you do this sin and you will die. What does he say in Romans chapter 6? The wages of sin is death. 
And it's much more extreme than a little rest on the knuckles of the bed. And as we keep on doing these sinful things, we have a growing dullness to the seriousness of it. And I would argue, and I think I've seen this many times, that there comes a point where people don't even seek forgiveness because it's become no big deal. Remember, it says in the book of John that Satan is the father of lies. It says in 1 Peter 3 that he's like a roaring lion going around seeking who he can devour. It says that his goal is to steal, kill, and destroy. So another one of his lies that we use as a rationalization is everybody's doing it, and they seem to be doing okay. And if we are honest with ourselves... We know a lot of people are doing it, but we also know a significant amount of people are not doing it. We also know that those that are doing it may appear to be okay. And in fact, even in the short time, they may be quote-unquote okay. But God looks, remember, in the long term. And he actually knows the real story that's buried in their life, the story that they probably are not even aware of that no one else can see. And he knows that when we continue down a path of ongoing sinful activity, unrepentant, what does it say in Psalm 73? Understand their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terror. In other words, there's consequences for ongoing, unrepentant, sinful choices, whether it's in the short term or in the long term, but usually in both. And if you read the rest of the chapter, you see all of the consequences. We read one of them in verse 14, but if you read right down through 24, every person is visited with consequences. Another lie, God is unreasonable in his expectations because after all, I'm only human. Does God expect? And in fact, provide a way to stand up under temptation. Absolutely. The Bible promises that he does. He never, ever asks us any, to do anything that's literally impossible. This is a lie in the pit. Because we think it's impossible. And so they both eat the fruit and their eyes are opened. And they have a razor sharp sense of, of guilt. Because they've sinned. Because they've rebelled. Because they wanted to be God. And their ego and their own self-fulfillment are more important to them than what God has said. And they believe that his intention to have their best in mind was not God. And someone says, well, Scott, if this is such a big deal, like you seem to suggest that it is, and this, these pages certainly say they are. Why'd God put the tree there in the first place? Because he's chosen to give us freedom. That's the short answer. It's complicated, but it's the short and true answer. He wants people, and you see this all through the book, he wants people who are willing to choose what he asks. He wants people who are willing to choose to worship him. 
people who are willing to be open to whatever he would have in their life, rather than people that are forced to do it. One of the songs earlier we sang from Philippians chapter, was based in Philippians chapter 2 that we sang earlier, he said, you know, it's, it's much better to do it now, willingly and voluntarily, because one day every knee will bow. So he wants people to do it willingly now, but on judgment day, if they haven't done it before then, then they'll be compelled to do it. And they'll go, wow, was I wrong. If there was no tree, there is no freedom to choose. And we would all be robotic in our relationship with him. In fact, we wouldn't even have the capacity to consider this or to ask those questions. If you think about it. Without the possibility of evil, there is no freedom. And so they chose evil. And then they try to run and hide from God. Remember in chapter 2, like we talked about last week, there's no barriers, there's no hindrances, there's nothing marring the relationship with God, there's no guilt, there's no shame, there's no sin. And now they hide from them. And when God comes to the garden, it's not that he doesn't know where they are physically located. He asks the open-ended question, what's going on in your lives? Where are you? And he confronts them with the truth. And of course, uh, true to form, they start blaming one another. And everyone involved faces consequences I referenced earlier. And then there's an incredible verse in verse 15. One that we spoke and sang about over and over and over again, all through the songs earlier. Verse 15. In the very chapter where we rebelled against God, where we thumbed our nose at him, where we spit at him. This is where he offers salvation for the first time. This is the first time that there's a promise of the Savior. And it's found in verse 15. God says, And I will put enmity between you, meaning Satan, and the woman between your offspring, speaking prophetically of when Christ the Messiah will come, between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This verse is what the theologians call the Proto-Evangelum, which means literally the first gospel. This is the first promise of Messiah, that he will come, Satan will take a swing at him, Hurt him a little bit, but Jesus ultimately completely triumphs by going to the cross and rising from the dead. And I want you to be reminded, if you're thinking about some of the things that you have done that you're ashamed of, I want you to be reminded of how much God loves you. We sang about that over and over again today. Do not believe the lie from the evil one that it's hopeless. This is another one of his famous lies. You have screwed up so bad, Scott, that surely you've used up any credit you would have with God. And of course, that's a lie too. Never forget how much he loves you. In the moment of our first rebellion, this is when the promise of his sacrifice is given. And some of us are in this room right now, and right now, 
We're kind of bored with what's going on and we're plotting our next sin. But most of us in the room here this morning is deep in our core, we want to stand against temptation. And we want to have victory. So what are some of the things that jump off the page in helping us to resist temptation? First of all, know this. And again, many people get confused by this. Many. Being tempted is not sin. Being, I say it again. Being tempted is not sin. If you were to read in Hebrews chapter 2 and in Hebrews chapter 4, we won't take time to read those verses there right now, but in chapter 2 and in chapter 4, we're told that Jesus was tempted in every way, yet was without sin. And it's not, again, this is another place where people get confused. Some people think the reason Jesus didn't sin is because he's God. Not so. The reason Jesus did not sin is because he's the spirit-filled God-man. 100% God, 100% man. The possibility was there that he could have chosen to sin. But in the power of the spirit, he chose not to. Being tempted is not sin because if if it is, then Jesus is sinful. Now, it says in the book of James, just listen to the progression here. When tempted, in chapter 1, verses 13 to 15, it says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire, he's dragged away and enticed. So that's where temptation ends. Dragged away and enticed. Then... Verse 15, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full full grown, gives birth to death. There's a progression. First of all, God is never the one tempting us. God always has our, as I say over and over again, he has our best in mind, he has good intentions for us, and he wants us to live a holy life a life that increasingly reflects what Jesus is like, a life empowered by him. And so he never tempts us. Someone else is tempting us. And so some kind of opportunity presents itself, some kind of temptation, and we desire it. And we're dragged away, it says, and enticed by it. And up until this point, we have not sinned. In fact, it could could really be a very legitimate desire at this point. But then we involve our, we, we mull it or we, we go back to it, we mull our on it, and we involve ourselves in it. And we sin when we satisfy these cravings in our life in inappropriate and unhealthy and ways that are contrary to what God's will is. And it starts to become a pattern. And it takes a hold of our life and grows in our life, and this leads to death. Most simply, You know, it's just temptation, I want it, it begins in my mind. And rather than move away from it with God's help, as he promises to do, I go back to it and I do it. So what are some of the ways to not move from temptation to sin? Again, what are some of the things that this passage suggests? Well, first of all, I'm going to use the word find or find a friend or help a friend. 
if Adam was right there, which I suspect he was, he was incredibly passive and not playing a role that he should have played. And he heard her being deceived and tricked or whatever by the evil one. He should have stepped in. He should have said, this is not right. This is wrong. We've been told not to do this. He's trying to trick you. He's trying to entice you. He should have spoken up and said, we're not doing this. Or at the very least, there should have been conversations prior to this where they talked about how beautiful everything God has done for us and everything he's provided in every way. But we need to watch each other's back with this tree thing. Because obviously this is a big deal. God said if we touch it or eat of the fruit of it, we're going to die. So we need to watch each other's back. We need to speak into each other's life if we see any inclination towards doing that. And see, if you see a friend, and this takes courage, that we often don't display. If you see a friend hindering down a dangerous path, the loving thing to do is to take them aside and lovingly and truthfully warn them. Not trying to shame them and embarrass them and all that stuff, but just say, wow, I'm, I'm a little concerned. I think I start to see some patterns in your life that are leading you in a way that I know in your heart you've never really wanted to go. Or on the other shoe, if you find yourself tempted, do you have a person that you can talk to to help pray for you and keep you accountable? Second thing is, is <laughs> we lie to ourselves and think we can hide from God. This is exactly what they did, and we think we can do it too. And we, we think, you know, we think nobody knows what I'm doing. All I have to do is delete my computer history. And no one will know what I've done. Or this stuff I'm going to do, I'll just wait until I'm out of town next time and I'll do it there because no one knows me there. And we think we're very clever. And we think we can cover our tracks. And we're foolish. And we lie to ourselves. Because God sees everything. And guess what? The evil one sees everything too. And when he sees us doing this or inclined this way, you don't think he custom designs more temptations along those lines? And so we make his job easier rather than harder. But God sees everything. There's nothing. He, he knows the motives of our heart. He knows the thoughts that we're thinking. And he loves us too much to let us go down that destructive path. And so he tries to hold us to account. And he tries to short circuit that ingrained habit that leads to death. And think how it grieves the heart of God because of our freedom to choose that we choose the other path rather than him over and over and over again. Again, the passage Another thing it says is, you sin and you're going to be punished. You sin and there will be consequences. There's going to be a downside to this. And we try to minimize it. Not that every time we go through difficult times in life, it's as a result of sin, but sometimes it directly is. 
can read about this in many places in Scripture. I say again, when you're going through difficult things, it's not always because of sin, because of something I've done, but many times it is. And we will be punished. And again, it's not because he's trying to wail on us. It's because he loves us and wants to bring a measure of correction. Find the way of escape is the next one. First very well-known verse, 1 Corinthians, promise from God. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And again, we think we're unique. We say this to ourselves. We don't might use this language. We say it all the time. I'm a special case. No one else is going through this. This is harder for me than anyone else. That Bible was written a couple thousand years ago. They didn't have temptation back then like we do. It's a lie. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. It is not impossible. He's faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way of escape so that you can stand up under it. He always, he always provides the escape plan. And sometimes it's just as simple as run away. Run away. Just like Joseph did. He left in a big time hurry when Potiphar's wife was trying to get him to commit adultery. And he suffered greatly for making the right choice, didn't he? But he got radical, and he did whatever he had to do not to do that. And so whatever this issue is in your life, and it's different typically for each one of us, we sometimes have to take very radical steps to cut off that thing in my life. So I've known people, for example, that have removed their TV from their home because their viewing habits were not good. Maybe you have to give up your smartphone. Oh, I couldn't do that. Yes, you can. Maybe you need to get a different job. Maybe you need to get new friends. Maybe you need to move. Radical, radical, radical as necessary to gain victory. Lastly, have a growing relationship with God. It's pretty obvious, right? Am I filled with the Spirit? Am I walking in the Spirit? Do I keep on being filled with the Spirit? These are all invitations from Scripture. Because God, you know, we think we can do this stuff on our own, and we kid ourselves. It goes back to the lie of the garden. We think we're much better than we really are. God never, ever, ever expects us to do this stuff on our own. Because it's impossible to live the Christian life the way we're invited to live it in our own strength. And this is why God says, let me help you. Let me fill you with my spirit. Let me give you power from on high. And when that promise is given in Luke chapter 24, verse 49, and then we see it fulfilled in Acts chapter 1 and chapter 2, we're given power to live a holy life and power to live a life of service as God has called us. This is how Jesus did it. He was full of the Spirit. And when this happens, 
In Galatians chapter 5, we're told that there's nine elements of the fruit of the Spirit that will be increasingly exhibited in our life when we're filled with the Spirit. And one of those nine elements is self-control. God will help me do it. And so Adam and Eve blew it big time. And they're just an illustration of me and an illustration of you. Because in fact, every one of us has blown it. The Bible says every one of us has made a calculated decision to become God's enemy. And friends, I remind you of the good news of verse 15. In the very chapter where we thumbed our nose at God, the promise of Jesus is given. This is why Jesus came. This is why he did what he did. This is why he doesn't just show us the way. He is the way, and he does the heavy lifting.